Today, although we're going to see uh, Ruth being excellently busy and faithful, again, we're going to be introduced to a new key character as well, Boaz. What we're actually going to do, what I want to do, is focus on the place where the story happens. Because setting is really important in understanding the Bible. There's often lots that God is wanting us to set, uh, us to hear from him, not just in who uh, is involved, but where they are and what happens. And at the end of chapter 2, which is what we're looking at today, Naomi will say to Ruth, where have you been? Because some amazing things are going to have happened to her. And Naomi's response is, where have you been? And the answer will be that she has been to a place of grace. She has been to a place where the goodness of God has been shown to her. I wonder if you have experienced this. I hope if you're here with us today, you have, maybe you're watching online, you're just starting to find out about church or about this church, and maybe that hasn't been your experience so far. To come into a community where God is known and where he's loved and the love that he has given to his people is shared with you. I remember the first time a couple of my friends from school invited me along to their church youth group, and it was like nothing I'd ever experienced before. Um, And and I remember coming home thinking, I've experienced just something wonderful, something really new. And, and, And that's the start of that experience. They became my friends, and as they became my friends, their God became my God. I I put my trust in him because I had experienced a place of grace. And so I was then brought to the giver of grace. A few years later, having had a really exciting start with God, I was then very much trying to do my own thing, making a total hash of it in all sorts of ways. And I I just felt empty. And I was like, what have I done? What's going on? This is rubbish. Where can I go? And I knew the answer. I knew the answer. I needed to go back to that same community, back to those same friends. I hadn't spoken to some of them for a few years. And I just came back. I was like, I need some help. And they were like, we'd love to help. And that was my life. Finally, I I feel like transformed. All of us need this. All of us need to be in a place where God is known and God is loved and his love is shared with us. Whether you've been a Christian for decades or you're still just working all this out at the moment, God wants us to be in a place of grace where we can be blessed by him. And then from that blessing, we are then able to bless others as well. And his plan is that the local church be that place. When we gather on Sundays, when we gather midweek for small group, uh, through the ministries that the church does, or just when the people from that church gather together and invite other people to be part of those gatherings. These are all moments, these are all places in which God's grace can be shared with others. And I want us to look at that. We're going to look at how Bethlehem was a place of grace for Ruth and Naomi. And I think as we do that, I'm hoping that we're going to be reminded of the things that God wants us to do. We're going to be uh, challenged maybe to make sure that we're doing those things uh, as a community, but also individually as well. And I'm just going to, usually I would read a big text and then say, here are some things we can learn from this. With this, I'm just going to go through the story and just pick out things as we go along. And so there might be some things that just don't really connect for you at all, or you're like, oh, that's fine and good. But there might be just something, and it might not last for long, but it's something that God is going to be just drawing your attention to and wanting to speak to you about. And so I want to encourage you just to be, just to be ready for that really. And one of the ways in which we can be ready for that is is to say to God, I'm ready for that. So why don't we just pray together and then we'll we'll go on. So Lord, we, we we do ask you 
Lord, to show your wonderful, abundant love to us today. Thank you that as we've praised you, you've spoken your kindness to us. Thank you there's many of us who have known and can testify to the goodness of God in our lives through the people of God. And Lord, in your mercy, would you continue to extend that today? That Lord, even as there's people here who don't yet know you, people who watching online who don't yet know you, yet they would be drawn in to your people and ultimately drawn into you. And Lord, with all the different things that I want to say, all the just different, oh, look at this, look at that. Lord, I pray each one would land for people and would be you speaking to them. Give us ears to hear what you're saying to, you to, uh, to us today and hearts to respond in faith. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's, let's go through this story. It starts at the end of chapter one. So Naomi returned uh, to her homeland and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So Ruth and Naomi, just as you've seen the story in the video, uh, they were living in a foreign land. Um, Naomi's husband died. Ruth's um, husband died. That's Naomi's son. And, and so they're desperate. They've got nothing. They really are empty and they come back to Bethlehem which is Naomi's hometown and they've got essentially that all they're bringing with them is Naomi's bitterness and Ruth's hope there's nothing else that they've got with them at all but that is enough when you come to a place of grace because empty hands can be filled and God loves to do that Bethlehem means place or house of bread it's a place of provision for us, like, oh, bread, that's a nice thing, but bread is life here. Bread is the difference between being able to eat and not, being able to live and not, being able to provide for others and not. And they arrive at a, t- a really exciting time. It's harvest time. This is the moment when you bring in all that God has provided. Absolutely, literally essential to an agricultural community that there is a harvest to bring in. So months ago, these people would have been, uh, they would have been preparing the land. They would have needed uh, to, to kind of dig it up, break it up, uh, make sure there were no stones and rubbish in it as there was from before, clear all that out. Then they plow it and then they sow the seed and then they, they plow that back in and then they're waiting and praying. And, you know, it's very basic technology uh, to make this happen. And it's not about a specialist job. It's you've got to do this because this is how you get food. Now, a few months later, it's the time to get the sickles out, to cut the crops, gather them, bring them into what's called the threshing place and and to thresh them out, which is to kind of get rid of the stuff you can't eat and then just have this flour. And then you've got flour. And with flour, you can cook and you can eat and you can live. And this would have been happening across the ancient Near East. Ruth almost certainly would have been really familiar with it from her own hometown. But there was something different here. There's something different in Israel. The people harvesting here were so conscious that everything they had came not from their own effort or from the kind of the bribes of sacrifices that they had paid to their idols. But instead, it was all the free gift of their good God. That was absolutely changing who they were and how they lived. Before they'd entered the land, God had told them, the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of wheat and barley, amongst many other great things, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Beware 
lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So God had said that to them in Deuteronomy 8 before they even got in the land. I was like, I know what you're like. I know what's going to happen. Things are going to go well, and you're going to be like, I'm so great. I was like, no, I am your good God. I am the one who's given you that land. And so the ways in which they were to remind themselves of this was that when the harvest started, the moment they had some crops, they weren't to eat it. They were to take it to God. The first fruits, the Old Testament calls it. He says, bring the first fruits to me. And worship me with them. Say, this has come from me. And because it all belonged to God, it was his to use as he saw fit. So they weren't like, look at all these crops I've got. They're like, look at all these crops that God has given me to look after. What, therefore, do I need to do with them? God commanded them to not take every single thing from their fields. I was on a train this week and just seeing fields and massive fields ready to be harvested and knowing that, I mean, it's good news for us, isn't it, that farming technology maximizes yields, that gets it all, because that keeps food prices low, hopefully, and that means we can eat. And and that's great. We're glad that our system's like that. But God told his people, you're not to be like that. You're not to make the most of it. You need to leave some. He said, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings. That's the bit that you'd missed or the bits that had dropped down. After your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of the vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. That's the one visiting. I am the Lord your God. So God gives him this command, and then he says, I am Yahweh your God. And he does that because it's absolutely in his heart that those who are poor, that those who are vulnerable, that those who are in need are provided for by those who have plenty. This is what I do, God said. They were to be reminded of that themselves. Like, why have I got anything? Because God provided. So what do I do with what God gives me? I need to make sure I'm providing for others. This was an act of faith on the part of the farmers. So God was saying to them, believe me, it's better for you not to take up the whole harvest. Really? How can that be the case? It was an act of generosity because they had worked really hard. They had done the plowing. They had done the sowing. They had done most of the reaping. And then God was saying, yeah, all fine, but I now want someone else to benefit from your labors. We mustn't take it for granted that all of God's people did this, got plenty of evidence in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, that they did not. And that's why when we read about Bethlehem, and particularly when you're reading it as an original listener, you're thinking, oh, this is a place that obeys God. This is a place that does what God says. That makes it a great place to be if you are in need. How much more so should the church be like this? God's generosity is seen in Old Testament laws like this, but it is revealed fully and finally in Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. His great labors of living among us and dying for us and conquering sin and death were that we might receive the gift of all God's goodness through him. He is the one who works hard. We are the ones who are saved. It's the amazing thing that God has done for us. Paul asked the Corinthians, he said, what do you have 
that you did not receive. The basic predisposition of a Christian is that I have received. I have been the, I've been the object of generosity. When you know that, when you know that God has provided everything we have and everything that we ultimately need in Christ, that can unleash faith and generosity because that same God is now at work in you. And you're not thinking, I need to do all I can to get above everyone else, to get on. You're like, wow, this is a gift. So maybe, I don't know, this might just be truthful. The church is a place where we celebrate this and where we share this with others. It might just feel like hard work for you at the moment. Just church life just might be like that. Just serving on a Sunday or for some of us getting the kids here or for others hosting small group or, or giving your money as the cost of living rises. You're like, my salary isn't rising. Everything else is rising. What do I do with my giving? Or, or whatever it is for you, it just might be, it might be hard at the moment. Maybe you're just like, oh, God, I'm going to look, I've got to go and speak to some other new people. I've got to do that again. I've got to get to know some other people again. Whatever it is, today is a reminder that we are doing this in order to give others the greatest gift which we ourselves have received. All the things that we do for God are because of all the things that he's done for us. All the things that we do for others is because God and others have done those to us. I know it's still hard. I know it's still tiring. I know we're still like a bit COVID-y and it's difficult. And, and I know there's a whole bunch of other stuff going on in the world that we're trying to work out and think about. And you're like, can I just get to church? Like, well, yes. But for most of us, God's calling us to do more than that, to be a way in which others receive the generosity of God through our generosity, through our sacrifices. So Ruth believes God. She believes him that if she goes and tries to get some food in the fields, there'll be people there who will enable her to do that or allow her to do that. So she's like, right, Naomi seems to be sitting there. I need to go and do something. I need to go and get us food. And she does it. And she's just amazing like that all the way through the story. So she goes out. She doesn't know where she is. She sees a field or part of a field, as it probably was. There weren't like lots of fences and stone walls and hedges like our fields have. There had just been land, and she's been like, that one, I'm going to go there. And she sees who seems to be in charge, and she says, can I glean in the field? And the person says yes. So she gets to work. So she set out, Ruth 2, 3 to 4 tells us, and she went and she gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, her father-in-law. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Bless you. Now, there are a couple of coincidences in this little story, which we are meant to notice, and they're essential to the plot. And we're going to look at them in a preach later on in the series. But what we're looking at today, what we're actually overhearing, is the kind of place Bethlehem is. You see, the narrator of Ruth only mentions God by name a couple of times. He obviously, or he or she thinks that it's pretty clear that God's at work, but they only mention God a couple of times. But the characters in Ruth talk about God all the time. He's mentioned over 20 times by them. And even though they don't always know what God is doing, they are aware of his presence in their life. They are aware of his involvement with them. And that's what happens in this brief conversation that Boaz has with his reapers. He says, the Lord be with you. He is reminding them of their great privilege of being the one people on the whole earth 
about whom you can say, God is with you, the one true God, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, the giver of all good gifts, the only one good, true, kind God. He is with us. He's reminding them that he's intimate, God is intimately involved in their lives, that his eye is fixed on them to do them good and to care for them. This isn't just hello. <laughs> this is an amazing reminder. The phrase also reminds them that God was never far away from them and that he was holy and to be obeyed. And so they were to respond to this. As I've said, they were to worship God by giving him the first things that they got from their harvest. And they were to obey him by allowing those in need to glean in their fields. I was like, the Lord is with you. That is great news. That is also, I don't know how you put it, a nice threat. Maybe they would have, some of them would have remembered the famine a decade ago, which, was, which happened because they didn't obey God. Say, so the Lord's with you. Great, do what he says. And the reply that he, Boaz received, he said, the Lord bless you, was a celebration that their God loved to bless people. As God had said to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The harvest that they were gathering was just one expression among many of God's goodness to them. Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you can say with Paul in Ephesians 1, that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's funny that we only say bless you when people sneeze. Because God is blessing you right now. And God has blessed you if you're in Christ. And God will bless you for all eternity. That's what he does. That's what he is. So that that. That sense of, yeah, the Lord bless you is so true for us. And so is it true that the Lord be with you. Because Jesus said that. As he left, he said, I am going to be with you always. And then he sent his people, his Holy Spirit, to fill them and flood them, not just with power, though with power, but that power that isn't abstract, it's personal. It's the power of God himself who now dwells in all of his people. And so the church community is the place where God makes himself especially known and where we respond with glad rejoicing to do others good. Even as Boaz exchanges his beautiful greeting about God's goodness, he is about to walk into its greatest fulfillment in his life. He doesn't know what's about to happen. Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? The servant who was in charge of the reapers answers, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Bethlehem wasn't a big place. So Boaz quickly noticed there was someone he didn't recognize gleaning in his field. And there's a possibility that his foreman is a little bit unsure about this. He says, Yeah, she's the person from Moab, Boaz, Moab. Those people who are our enemies, those people who aren't supposed to be anywhere near us. But he does also truthfully report what she's been up to. 
He doesn't, make, he doesn't tell lies about her. He doesn't perpetuate injustice against her. And Boaz later tells Ruth that other people have been talking about her too. He says, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. But this isn't gossip. In a place of grace, those who are in need will be talked about by others so that they can be helped. And often people think, how do I make sure that I'm talking about people well and I'm, I, I, I'm not gossiping? Because we absolutely hate that. We don't want to be a place where that happens. But does that mean I can't say anything about anyone? Well, to be honest, our consciences will usually let us know why we're saying something to someone, if we actually listen to it. Are we experiencing the thrill of being in the know? Is there any hint of pride in the way we're telling the story, this other person's story that suggests that it's all their fault, even if it is? Are we telling people who can help or anyone who can listen, anyone who will listen? Have we actually asked the person's permission to share about their situation? Are we actually praying for them and actively trying to help them? If we are doing these things, then we are doing the good things and that and not doing the bad things of that, then we, are, then we are being good for people. We are being the grace of God. Ruth was highly aware of her uncertain status amongst God's people. She calls herself a foreigner. She calls herself later a servant or even a slave. It can be really hard to come to a new place. And even a church community, and just look around you and be like, well, everyone else is talking. Everyone else seems to know what's going on. And, and you know, you feel like, oh, and I don't. I mean, I can assure you that's never the tra- case at King's in terms of everyone knowing what's going on, because we definitely don't. Um, but, but actually, there are always other people visiting here, and there are always people around you who came here for the first time last week, or something like that. And then, okay, right, well, I know one person. I'm going to talk to them at least. And, but what can happen in those moments where we're just looking around, we just feel ourselves alone, even actually if we've been here for a long time, is this, these quiet, knife-edged questions come into our minds. Who would miss you if you didn't come? Why would anyone care about you? Those kind of things that will just make it much easier not to come next Sunday, not to come to small group. Now, whether Boaz means to do this or not, he convinces Ruth that she is really welcome. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he is giving her permission to keep gleaning. That's in accordance with the law. That's what God told him he had to do. Now, we've already seen, it's no small thing that he is actually just obeying the law. But he then goes way beyond the letter of the law to capture its spirit, which is that the law is a revelation of God's loving kindness. So he doesn't just say, look, I'm counting the sheaves that you are gleaning. I'll tell you when you've limited your limit. He's not saying that at all. He says the complete opposite. And he doesn't just say, listen, you're a foreigner. I've got to tolerate you. He says, no, go, go and join that team. Go and join that group of young women. I wonder the last time Ruth had spoken to anyone who wasn't Naomi. I wonder the last time she'd had a friend, like a peer, someone just to chat to. And Boaz says, go and and talk to those guys. 
He uses his authority to keep her safe. And then he says, just drink the water. It's been really normal for, uh, for a woman, particularly a foreign woman, to have to draw her own water from the well. Boaz says, don't worry about it. Got some guys doing that. You just drink what they've drawn. Now, given what happens later in the story, spoiler alert, it is natural to wonder whether or not Boaz has fallen for her straight away. It's like, I'm just serving God in any way I can. <laughs> for you. We don't know. I th- I'm not sure. I'm not sure he has. I'm not sure we're meant to think that. We aren't told his motives. Maybe we are just meant to be in that zone of like, what is going on? But here's the thing. His motives are devoted and generous. And in that, they match what Ruth is like. And in that, they match what God is like. Because that's how God treats all his people. Not like a distant acquaintance. Not like someone they're obliged to. But like his very own heart. Like his wife. And so when we treat people with kindness and compassion, when we welcome them with more than they expect, we give them an experience of God. Now, none of us can give to everyone the care and attention that God wants to give them. And we're not called to do that. But we are called to be on the lookout for anyone to do this to. One of the things actually about being a good neighbor is that you don't just develop the relationship between you and them, you introduce them to a community, and you bring to other, them into other people who can bless them as well. Boaz goes on to say to Ruth, the Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So Ruth has come under God's wings, to use this image, by putting her faith in him. She said, I'm forsaking my other gods, uh, the gods of my family and all of that. No, I believe in the God of Israel, the one true God. I'm going to follow him. And the Psalms use this image of of wings, of God's wings, as a place of safety, uh, primarily. And because they're a place of safety, they're also a place of rejoicing. Are we safe under God's wings from the ups and downs of life? No, we are not. But are we safe from the powers of sin and death? Are we safe from forces far greater than we are? Yes. Yes. He will bring us to himself, and no one can take us from him. So we say, come to God's people and get what you cannot get from anywhere else. Come to God and get what you cannot get from anyone else. All the goodness and the kindness that we try to share with people coming to us must be so that they hear there is hope for them in Jesus. They need to hear through what we do and through what we say of the refuge that he alone offers through his outstretched arms on the cross. Ruth says to Boaz, I found favour In your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly. So we know at this stage that Naomi was just overwhelmed with grief and bitterness at this time. She was almost certainly a difficult traveling companion. It's not entirely her fault because hard, hard things had happened to her. But 
Like I said, who knows how long Ruth has just walked with her, either in silence or, you know, just hearing the sad monologue. When was the last time she heard anyone speak like this? Do you know there's a chance she'd never heard anyone speak like this? Because Boaz isn't just saying some nice things. He's not just offering some vague consolation. He is speaking grace to her. He is speaking God's truth, God's kindness to her. Our words, the Bible says, have the power of life and death in them. Now, we see that all over the place. People can say terrible things to you, and that can ruin your life. People say good things to you, and that can really help. That's just true in general. But how much more is that true when the words we have are the life-giving good news of who Jesus is? That is the life that we have to give in our words, and not simply by saying that Jesus loves you, though that's amazing and that's true, but in all that we do, being informed by that, being shaped by that, so that when we do say to someone, Jesus loves you, they're like, well, that makes sense. Here's the thing. The words God has given us, as those who are filled with his spirit, not like the specific form of words necessarily, but what he has given us by his spirit, are to encourage and to build people up with truth and love, with hope and kindness. And you know, you might be the only person who does this for someone this week. Their home, their work, their networks might be full of grief, antagonism, strife, tension, fear, disappointment, hurt, and all of those things recurring and recurring and going round and round and round with everyone. And you might be the person who says, thank you so much. You might be the person who says, God bless you. You might be the person who says, I saw that. That wasn't right. Boaz had already matched his words with his deeds, but he continues to do so. At the mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers, and he passed, it, passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Meals are really important in most cultures, but certainly in that culture, you sat with people who you were in community with. Family or extended family or maybe nationality, but that's who you sat with. Meals really defined those things. So Ruth knows who she is, and she suspects what they all think about her. So there's absolutely no way Ruth is going to go and sit with them. And Boaz says, come over here. Come over here. Come and eat. Come and be part of us. Now, he gives us some bread. He gives us some wine. Those are very common elements of meals in that culture, but... I think we should allow ourselves to be reminded of the meal Jesus gave us at that point. Because he said, you need to remember this, that I've given my life for you, I've died for you. You need to remember this, that I have made a covenant with you through my blood. And the bread and the wine represent these things, that he has died and raised to new life, and that he has brought a people to himself. And so when we do take communion here, when you do it in your uh, small group, anyone who has put their trust in Jesus is welcome to eat and welcome to drink. And by eating together, we identify ourselves as those who are in Christ Jesus. But before someone gets to that point of faith, we need to find ways to welcome them in and to say, hey, you are welcome. Come and be part of this. Yeah, there's some things that you need to still work out, but come and be part of this. 
Sharing food is a great way to do that. That's why our Path of Disciples courses, when they happen in our Alpha courses, usually involve eating together. Let's gather, let's eat, let's talk, and let's share. We're going to spend the second half of our autumn term looking at this, actually, um, to help us go out and reach people as Jesus did. But just to say for now that one of the best ways that people learn what following Jesus looks like is by sharing ordinary life with followers of Jesus. We're not simply trying to transfer some information, but actually to give what we've received. And even such a simple thing as eating together helps that to happen. Boaz followed all of this up by instructing his workers to let Ruth take whatever she wanted, and they were to just like accidentally drop loads of crops just behind them, just where she was, so that she could collect them. And so she gleaned, we're told, in the field until evening. All day long she has worked. She's such a hero. But the reason she can do this is because God has provided a place for her. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, another hard job, and it was about an ephah of flour. That is like 22 litres. That's like a fortnight's worth of food. And she took it up and went into the city. This is how God prefers to meet our needs to give us way more than we need. It's a sign of his abundance, his limitless wealth, his limitless love. And sometimes he will do that practically in terms of provision, in terms of money or house or food or something like that. But again, we go back as Christians to Ephesians 1. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have never come anywhere close to exhausting the grace of God. There's so much of it for you. And as I said, same as it's been a long time since Ruth has heard friendly, happy voices. I think it'd probably been a very long time since Ruth had thought, I'm full and I know where my next meal's coming from too. She was on her own. There weren't shops, there weren't so there wasn't social security or anything like that. She she, you know, she would have been like, Where are we gonna get food from tomorrow? Where are we gonna get food from tomorrow? Okay, we've got a little bit today, what are we gonna do about tomorrow? Suddenly she's got like two weeks worth of food and she's absolutely stuffed. When you're no longer scrambling for food or for company or for hope or for meaning, you can find rest. Ruth was finally able to do that. So she brings her dinner's leftovers and the massive sack of flour back to Naomi. And Naomi says, where have you been? The answer is, she's been to a place of grace. She has been where God is honoured and obeyed. She's been where abundance is seen as an opportunity to bless others, not improve your own situation. She has been where the poor are cared for and the stranger is welcome. She's been where people speak kindness and truth. She's been where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. She's been, we might hopefully say, to church. So a chapter that started with loneliness and bleakness ends with hope and a sense of community. And that's the journey we want to take people on our, in our city on and anyone else who we come into contact with. We're to be those who actually together share what Jesus is like. You form a community that is a place of grace so that people can meet the giver of grace. That's what God is calling us to do. And maybe today you're, going to ex- you're just experiencing that. And that is wonderful. 
And you are so welcome. And God wants to keep doing that in you that you might then do that to others as well. So I just want you to take a moment to, just to ask God what he's been asking of you. There was a particular thing in that, or just what it means to be a community altogether doing this. You need to be more part of that. Whatever it might be for you, just ask the Spirit to let you know. Just maybe it might help you to close your eyes or just focus on a passage or something. Just say, God, what are you saying? I'm just going to give you a couple of moments uh, to start doing that, and then you might need to take that conversation on later with other people. But just ask God what he's asking of you right now. Okay, and how I'd like us to end is there are all sorts of great things happening in this story, and the kind of eating together thing, we can do that with tea and coffee and biscuits and then the picnic uh, in a bit, but I, I, just, I just love how they, they speak God's words to one another graciously. And so I thought it'd be great just to kind of say together the, the priestly blessing, which is almost certainly in their minds um, when, they, um, when they greeted one another, because that was said to them a lot. And it was an expression of God's will. And I think it just it kind of was in their language and in their thought. Um, and so what I'd just love to do, if you're able to stand, why don't you stand? I'm just going to say this out loud all together. And by doing that, we're, we're saying that to people around us. I know it's kind of quite abstract, but we're actually saying it to people. We're saying it to one another here but also to those who are beyond hearing it today, but we believe are not beyond God's reach. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. The Lord be with you.